0: Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine Leperriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're gonna gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're gonna hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged and really inspired you. We wanna hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you wanna hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Last week, we shared with you just half of all the great snips and clips from all the 2023 episodes that were so good. This week, we'll be doing the same because we had so much great content. We couldn't create one podcast. We had to create two. So this is the second in this two-part series. Please enjoy. And if you haven't, check out the very first podcast. And be sure to sign up for the newsletter, The Whip. I have something kind of special. A man by the name of Atsushi Yasuda reached out to me on LinkedIn and was very inspired by what I'm doing with the Best Boss Ever podcast. Of course, I love getting notes like this. And I'm so thankful to say that I get them quite often, actually. So as he reached out, he said, Hey, you know, my dad has really been an inspiration. Would you be interested in the story? And so he sent me a letter this last weekend. Explaining, you know, kind of writing up a thought process to his dad. And I just thought it was so cool that I had to read it to you. So here it goes. He says, I would not call this your typical story about business. It's not about an IPO, a Gartner Magic Quadrant, or a product launch. It's about the grind and the sources of inspiration that create change that lasts a lifetime. Almost 40 years ago, when I was 17, my dad got me a summer job where he worked. I was so excited as the hourly wage far exceeded the 365 dollars most of my friends were making at the time. My dad, Yoshitaka, an engineer by training, worked at a sawmill in a small town in British Columbia. He worked alongside the -the salt-of-the-earth men. I don't really recall any women out there in the lumberyard that operated the heavy machinery debarkers, bandsaws, and planers that made the mill hum. His approach to work and life was that actions will always speak far more than words ever will. But when he did speak, you knew to listen. The 10-minute drive to work on our first day together was uneventful until my dad started talking. People are going to be watching you. Work hard. Don't be lazy. Don't sit when there is work that can be done. Jeez, I thought. Quite the pep talk at 7 a.m., we ended up in front of the biggest, gnarliest pile of scrap metal I have ever seen. Your job is to clean up this pile of metal. It cannot be burned, so it has to be put into the dump truck to be taken away. (laughs) W-T-F. That meant I had to heave heavy pieces of heavy gauge metal 15 feet into the air to clear the sides of the dump truck box. I cleared the area of the yard and I met my dad's four-week target. I can still carry the experience with me, but over the years, the lessons have evolved. It started off as just about the physical challenges, but as I got older and moved from steel-toed boots to laptops, airport lounges, and PowerPoint slides, I realized far more impactful lessons my dad taught me. They aren't anything that I haven't read elsewhere, but I know it has stuck for me. Number one, nothing replaces hard work. It doesn't matter your profession, it takes reps. It is that simple. Number two, do not sit where there is work to be done. My dad taught me in his own way to constantly look for opportunity to bring value, to take initiative and not wait to be asked. It seems pretty basic now, but I don't think it's as obvious as it may sound. Number three, It will look like shit until it doesn't. (laughs) It's way too easy to get caught up in the work in progress. The pile of scrap metal that doesn't seem to be getting any smaller, but progress is progress regardless of pace. And most things will look like a hot mess until it's done. And number four, be humble, proud. It felt good when the pile of metal was gone, but there was no parade, no party. I wasn't even sure if my dad said anything or noticed. Years later, I learned that he did notice. He didn't know the effort it took. His coworkers also took notice, which made him proud. If you are doing something for the accolades and the fanfare, the external recognition, it isn't the right reason. Be proud of your accomplishments and do it for the person in the mirror. I can only hope I can pass along a crumb or two of wisdom to my own kids the way my dad did for me. Thanks, dad.
1: I'll start with the big opening question. Who is your best boss? The first person that came to mind right away was the first boss that I ever had besides my dad, who was the first person that ever hired me for a sales job and the first person that hired me out of college. His name was Jared Rose. At the time, I didn't even want to be in sales. I graduated with a political science degree. Everyone was telling me I should go to law school. I didn't want to do that. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But what I did know is that I did not want to be an executive assistant, which is what every recruiter that I spoke with tried to get me to interview for. They were like, "What industry do you want to work in?" Okay, great. Let's try to get you an executive assistant role. And I was like, "What is this? The '70s?" Like, (laughs) (laughs) that is a little offensive, actually. It actually was, and I mean, just so that everyone is aware, this was like the mid-2000s. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's a little bit better now, but yeah, it's been it's been slow going. So, you know, even at at the age of like 21, I was like, "Yeah, that's never going to take me where I want to go." So I was like looking around and I found this conference company and I interviewed with Jared. I was the first person that he hired to build this division that he was building inside the company. And we just, we got along. He had the same major in school. We vibed and I convinced him to hire me. And I think that what he did that was so effective. And and I think that it specifically worked for like someone with my personality is he gave me. Some very basic tools, like the things that he told me to do were the things, I mean, a lot of the things that like I still teach teams in sales today. It was pretty intimidating and I didn't really have a lot to go on. It was basically like make a hundred cold calls between the hours of 7 a.m. and like 1 p.m. when European hours are over. Jared sat about five feet away from me. He made no calls. So it was basically just like me sitting on a (laughs) phone, making cold calls, making cold calls. No one else is in the office yet. Like everyone can hear everything that I'm saying. And I think that what he told me is he was like, okay, he's like, you know, you do this. And then a week later you follow up again. And then you do that like five more times. Like it was just very like basic, not overly complicated, just sort of like, this is how you run this process. And then he gave me a framework for how to think about those conversations. And then he gave me a lot of freedom. So the framework was basically like, do whatever you can that you think will work. And I think that I had, I didn't even know enough to be intimidated at that age. So I just sort of jumped right in. So he said, okay, you're going to come to the next event that we're having, which was this conference in Lisbon, Portugal. So I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. Like get my passport renewed really quick. Fly to Lisbon. We spend a day like setting up and then it's the night before the conference is starting. And I'm like, okay, like what's the plan? And so I asked him if he had a couple of minutes and I went to his hotel room with my little notebook. And I was like, so what do you want me to like do here? You know, like, do you want me to sit in the sessions and learn about all of the content? Do you want me to help like run logistics and check people in? Like, what's the goal? And he was like, Oh, that's right. You've never done this before. Sorry.
0: I just invited you, you know, as a guest.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He's like, Oh yeah. I forgot. You don't know about, you don't know how this works yet. He gave me like still one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten, which was, he was like, look, basically all I want you to do is just try and make connections with people because ultimately the reason that you're here is to take over like a lot of my relationships so that I can keep building this business. And so, you know, everybody here I know personally pretty much, but I want them to know you, so just talk to people. And then at the end of the event, you can tell me who you think you made a good connection with and then I'll tell you which of those you can take over as your clients. And I was like, "Cool." And he's like, "There's just one thing that you need to remember." which is don't try to impress anyone because you can't, you know? Like you just graduated Mm. from college. These guys are, they're in their fifties. They're highly educated. They've been everywhere. They manage trillions of euros. Like it's just no, and he said it in a way that it was not disempowering at all. It was actually extremely empowering because it took all of this pressure off and it wasn't in any way a put down. It was just like, It was honest, you know, and it was just like, look, like this is what it is. Like, don't try to impress anyone because you can't just try to connect with people that just resonated with me so strongly. And I think it was also what I wanted to do anyway. But I'm like, you know, you're it's like, is it going to be enough? And it was the best. It's probably like the best antidote to imposter syndrome that I can think of, you know. Right.
0: What a great piece of advice.
1: It really was. And it was, you know, there's some situations I think in which you do really have to, to psych yourself up and be like, I, you know, yes, like I own this and I am that person. But I think there's so many situations in life where you're like, I'm not like, there's (laughs) the only thing that I have to offer here is my attention. And that's, in in and of itself, extremely powerful. So, so that's what I did once we sort of started to develop some trust. The other thing that was so transformational about that experience is that he gave me a lot of freedom, which I think was a function of just, I think I was maybe the first person that he had ever managed. And he was just sort of like, well, she's doing her job, like she's doing well. So I'll just let her keep doing that. Like, great. That's why I hired her so that I can go do other things. Like, right. And then he sort of would give me as much guidance as I needed, but he also gave me a ton of freedom. And with that, I did like crazy things. Like, by the end of that job, I, convinced the company to organize a conference in Iceland because I just really wanted to go to Iceland. And I put (laughs) together... (laughs) Because I really wanted to go to Iceland. That's where we should do it. (laughs) So I made an event there. Like I created the whole program. I got all the speakers. It was a really successful event. It actually ended up being like a month before the 2008 financial crash which if you followed anything about, yeah, banking at that time, Iceland's economy as a country was extremely involved in. So at the last minute, like the minister of finance, they found out about my event because I mean, obviously like Iceland is a tiny country and the minister of finance of Iceland like called us and asked if he could come and speak. And then the president of the country hosted a reception for us at his house. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) How often do you
0: hear that?
1: (laughs) Never. It was so cool. Such the opposite experience of being someone's executive assistant. It allowed me to grow really fast in a really short period of time. And I think, you know, for somebody coming right out of school, it changed the way that I saw myself as a professional in an irreversible way.
2: I reflected on that a little bit. And, you know, I think with Joe, the biggest thing for me is I genuinely felt that he wanted me to be the best version of myself I could grow to be, and that any of his coaching or feedback or suggestions were a 100% altruistic, if that makes sense. I, I truly felt that his desire was to, and it wasn't just me. You could probably find dozens of people literally across the bank that would say Joe was their best boss ever because he truly invested in individuals, which i mean ultimately helped him build high performing teams but the investment was in me not in being the boss if that makes sense i actually have a page on my computer called wisdom from joe that over the course of my time working with him he would say things some are direct quotes some are concepts and i would write them down because i knew you know here i am now like i say 15 years later and I reference that page from time to time just to see what I've maybe forgotten and haven't kind of leveraged but they're helpful reminders to me that kind of live on on and on. I mean a couple examples. Joe had a document called the 10 rules of managing people and they're just intrinsic truths. They were facts that he had, you know, learned and experienced over his decades of leadership that he shared with all of us and as we read through those rules, we would see examples that we had experienced. And sometimes we would see stuff that we hadn't seen come to light, but I can tell you in the last 15 years, I don't think there's a rule in there that I that I haven't seen. You know, I'm not going to go through all, all 10, but I mean, like, like a couple of them are never be surprised, right? You think you've figured things out, you know, which way the road turns and where the business is going and things happen. And the way I've always interpreted never be surprised is never get flustered when things don't go according to plan. Joe was one of the consummate examples of something would go wrong or not as planned. And and his first reaction was, okay, let's understand what happened. What are the facts? How do we deal with it? How do we move forward? And so just the recognition that things will go off script, expecting the unexpected is half the battle, I think. The other one was was Joe used to talk a lot about realize how important it is to build trusting relationships with your team, but also realize that because you're the boss, some people will never tell you 100% of the story. And whether that's their own insecurities or you know, fault for not building enough trust or whatever it is, realize that not everybody will bare their soul and tell everything about what they're thinking or feeling or worried about. And he would always impress upon us the point that that's your job now as a leader to try and suss out the unspoken. Whenever the feedback was delivered, it always felt like the gift that it was intended to be. That's one of the things I picked up from him as well is when I do share feedback or constructive criticism, whatever label we decide to put on it, you say to someone, like, if I didn't care about you as an individual, if I didn't care that you reach your full potential... I wouldn't give you the feedback like if it's because oftentimes the feedback isn't make or break news or suggestions. It's the stuff around the edges that helps people be better employees, better leaders, better people. And, you know, a lot of it is kind of take it or leave it. Like you don't really need to give all that feedback to help someone be a good employee, but it's the stuff around the edges that that is sometimes harder to share about the way someone's coming across or the way you're perceived or these sort of soft things that are uncomfortable conversations, you need to be brave to have them. But when it comes in a spirit of truly wanting someone to be their best, then it is more likely to be received as a gift. And that's all, the way I always felt with Joe. Like he never made me feel bad about the feedback that he shared or the suggestions that he would, that he would make?
3: So I was interviewing for jobs. I was looking to make a change and I was working prior to that as a data analyst at the loyalty group, which is air miles. Okay. But I felt like I was underutilized. Like they weren't using my skill set at like the level, my abilities just was kind of stagnant. So I was really looking to make a leap and, but it was hard to sort of right-size myself from this job that I felt was like a little junior to my capabilities. And so I was interviewing for a bunch of jobs. And I interviewed with Ogilvy and with a number of people, including Guy, and just the fact that he offered me this job, which, you know, most times, especially in advertising, you have to come already with the like, you have to have done the job to get the job. But he didn't. He went on his feeling and what he felt I was a good fit, and he saw the potential in me. And so he gave me that chance, like to, you know, take the leap and try it. And I really think that's one of the many testaments to what makes a great boss.
0: I think it's amazing when people can do just what you said. They can interview you, and instead of comparing it to a laundry list of things that you've already done, they can actually try to use their intuition, I guess is probably the right word, their gut feel to see if they can take a chance on somebody.
3: Exactly. And I mean, that is one of the many things I've taken with me in my career. And as I've built my companies and how I've hired, because sometimes, yeah, someone might not tick all the boxes on the skill set checklist, but if you feel that they have the potential and they're a good fit and what we call in our world, a good egg, then, you know, a good egg is malleable and you can teach people almost anything. But is this someone you want to work with every day and, you know, want to invest your time in because it's it's a two-way street? You know, when you start at a new job, I always call it the idiot phase. Like, you don't know where anything is. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what to do. And you kind of sit around for a bit, feeling unproductive and not useful because you just don't have a hang of things. And then you look back later and you laugh. But at the time, sure. it's...
0: Learning something new.
3: <laughs> yeah. So I was at Ogilvy for about three weeks. I was pretty much sitting on my hands for a lot of the time because I was just waiting for more stuff. And then I started to get insecure and think, oh, I'm going to get fired. Like they don't have work for me in agency life, you know, it kind of mm-hmm. ebbs and flows. So I was getting really insecure. And one day he called me and asked me to see me in his office. And now I was like, oh, I'm done. And also because, like I said, he gave me this job that I hadn't had the previous experience. And now I'm sitting there doing nothing. And I go in and he says, um, you know, we just received an RFP to pitch for FedEx Canada's direct marketing business. And he said, I'd like you to work with us on putting the pitch together. So all this senior level management working on this pitch and me. So definitely by far the most junior person in the room by many years. And he just brought me into this pitch. I think, I mean, this is a long time ago, but let's just say it was a two-week process of getting this pitch together. And then I just assumed, okay, great. They have what they need. They're going to go pitch it. And then he invited me to come, which also was exciting. And then the day before when they were doing like dress rehearsal, he said, okay, Joanna, so you're going to present this part. And he assigned me a part. And... Of course, I was so nervous and was yes. senior level management at FedEx. And I've never done anything like this in my life. And I honestly remember going into the pitch being more nervous about the impression I was going to make on the senior team at Ogilvy,
0: <laughs>
3: the senior team at FedEx, because it was like all eyes. Well, fast forward, we won the business and I managed that account for so many years. And I mean, so many lessons were imparted on me from that experience. And one of the things that I always talk about, about what makes a great boss is putting, you know, your people center stage, not having a spotlight, letting other people and also letting people stretch themselves, giving them enough, not throwing them off the deep end to drown, but giving them enough of a stretch with a safety net where they can shine, try something new. Stretch their skills, learn more, and not feel the need to take the credit or steal the show. How did
0: he think it went? I'm just kind of curious. Did he give you feedback after?
3: The way he gave feedback, not just at the pitch, but all through the years that I worked there, he's so thoughtful with his feedback. It was actually a joke in the agency because he's a British man and has got very much that like kind of absent minded professor kind of aura to him. And if you went into his office, either just to ask him a question about something or say you were showing him a deck and he was going to give his feedback on it, he's so thoughtful that he would take these long pauses. He wouldn't say anything. And what felt like minutes going by, he's so not ahead of his time, but I mean, it's just what you know, people don't do, but right. he would take the time. He wasn't worried about the, like, is this uncomfortable? He was so careful with his words and how he said stuff. And really thought things through. And it really, I still think about it to this day, you know, when I'm in a hurry to like interrupt someone or jump in or, or react emotionally to something, I just like sit back and be like, can you take a breath? Can you take a pause? Can you allow silence for a few seconds, a minute, whatever it takes? It was pretty amazing. And then of course, everything he always said was so fair and balanced and not emotional.
4: I don't know how he found me, but he kind of took me under his wing. And all of a sudden, I was part of his posse. And we worked with a lot of financial services companies. Back in the day, it was before Sarbanes-Oxley times. So again, anybody who remembers the Sarbanes-Oxley times, post Enron, post Anderson, we were working on that type of work even before Sarbanes-Oxley came into play. And Chuck was my mentor. He was my leader. He was actually my boss's boss, but he was just really instrumental at helping me build the confidence I needed as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed Canadian in the big city of New York. So I think what was great is that he really believed in me even though I didn't believe in myself at all. And he really empowered me to learn in the way I wanted to learn. He really, you know, invited me to meetings and allowed me to observe what a good meeting looked like. You know, it just runs the gamut from being like in the weeds with us, even though he was a senior manager at the time and went on to have a very, very, very successful career at Deloitte. And also just being that kind of visionary, you know, strategic thinker relationship builder with our clients, he kind of ran the gamut, which I really appreciated. I just remember never really being kind of fearful of Chuck's leadership Mm. and his disciples also. So there were people who were, like I mentioned, there were managers between me and Chuck, who was the senior manager. And those managers seemed to take his lead in terms of how to lead in a motivating, empowering, kind of firm but fair way. So I don't remember a specific example because this is like 20 years ago at this point. But what I do remember is just feeling empowered and feeling that I was able to make those little mistakes and even some big ones and not kind of being massively penalized for it.
5: He was so generous in the way that he apprenticed me and made sure that I learned the skills he did. One of the things that I learned, like some of the best bosses is that they don't hoard knowledge. Mm
0: -hmm. For
5: a lot of people, I feel like they think that knowledge is the thing they have to hold on to create value in what they do. And he was the exact opposite. He was so generous in the way he apprenticed me in the micro things and the macro things. And then he was really generous in terms of giving me opportunity to practice it out loud, whether it was presenting or being the lead in something. And so it was really interesting. And it was also something that taught me how, you know, your best bosses, your mentors, they come in different shapes and sizes. He and I could not have been any more different. He was from Connecticut, it's and one of those like really rishi pishi sounding towns. His favorite sport was golf. I, I know nothing about golf. And yet we were kindred spirits. And it was a lesson also in the fact that there's a core humanity when you find somebody who's a really good mentor or boss that really can connect to anybody on the planet. I think that he really gravitated to my work ethic. He also saw how I didn't hoard what I learned. I think, you know, for a lot of people who are generous with their knowledge, they're a little bit more judicious about sharing it with people who are also going to share it with others, right? Mm -hmm. I think he spent his time with me because he probably felt like he was sprouting another person in his image of somebody who was going to be hardworking, strong work ethic, which he had, but also who would pass it on, if you will. Because I grew up in so many different places, early on, by the time I was eighteen, I grew up in like four different countries/slash continents. Wow! So I learned how to embody the person's story, how to live in their space, and I find that that if somebody is really sort of going to connect bridges and tunnels to you, that that disarms them. Mm-hmm. That makes them more open, and so I think he, I think he appreciated that. That I didn't come in assuming I was not going to have, as I said, kindred spiritness with him, that he, you know, I I was interested in what he was doing and saying. And I didn't let, you know, perceived identity sort of blocks not to have that connection. And I think that that was appealing to him. There was one situation where I had to put together a pitch, if you will, for a particular strategy we were pursuing. And he took time to have me tell the story back and forth to him that apprenticeship that comes to it he was a good mix of like very blunt feedback where it didn't work because I didn't need anybody to coddle me but at the same time you know was very supportive and that sort of old adage of what improv artists tell you he was a very much an and person that also was a mindset that really was I learned from him the idea of like building up somebody while you're still giving them incredibly, you know, tough
6: feedback. He was just amazing because he, within minutes, figured out what made me tick and never stopped asking what made me tick and responded to that by being the best possible manager I could ever have. He gave me enough leeway to get creative, innovate. He asked for my opinion, but he was always there if I needed him. So he provided me the brilliant consulting apprenticeship. And I'll tell you a story that really formed the way I view my role or have viewed my role ever since. My very first engagement with that company was a huge transformation project with the Department of Homeland Security. Project meeting, government leads there, and our project manager, who was not my best boss ever, but I equate the two because they have the same attitude, were in this meeting. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this is going to be one of these dull kickoff meetings for a major project. And this colleague of mine said to the government project manager the following words. We're glad to be back. You've had us back three years in a row. Every time we gave you our services, we made our recommendations, and you didn't implement and you didn't transform. I'm here to tell you that this is the last time that in good conscience we can take your money. So if you, again, don't implement our recommendations, we will not bid on the next contract. And I almost fell off my chair. And I thought, this is what you want in an ethical consultant. Yes. And that was the attitude of the whole organization. And and my best boss ever at that time personified all of that. So to me, that was a key. I love the integrity that stands behind that, right? Yeah, and it's usually not the reputation of government consultants, right? They're they're right. viewed as slimy and somewhat, you know, cutting corners. But this was very much a no surprises approach in every single one of our projects. You will not hide stuff from the client ever. Transparency and building of trust was just utterly amazing. So that that was very formative for me. So the second one was an amazing leader in terms of innovation and taking my expertise seriously. And they hired me as the trusted advisor for the for the State Department because we were implementing worldwide new visa information systems, crazy stuff. It was a no cost of the government contract to the tune of about a hundred million. Now I had to learn the for-profit world. I came from being a government consultant and now I'm in the for-profit world where I have to figure out business cases that I have to sell to the C-suite And it's no cost to the government. So the even a bigger company than the other one I just described, this company went at risk to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, taking it in one little applicant fee at a time. So it was, it was a huge risk for the company. But this director gave me the best apprenticeship ever in terms of thinking through the process of a really complex operation in a foreign country where you had to consider. Local laws, you had to consider currency exchange rates, cultural considerations about how to do business in a contact center in El Salvador, right? Mm -hmm. It was amazing. And the way he taught was to sit down and say, okay, let's figure out Polish pricing. And we'd literally have the proverbial napkin in a beer garden in Germany, and we'd map out every step that we could think of that we needed to come up with pricing that would work. Wow. It was fantastic.
7: So the best boss I think that I've ever had is Brock Higginson. And Brock Higginson was my principal when I was a classroom teacher in a past life. Okay. (laughs) Usually when you think of a a principal in a school, historically, especially across Canada, that usually used to be kind of like the, the best teacher in the building right? It was kind of the master teacher. It was the person that everybody wanted to be in their class and also the person who had the best results with student learning. And usually it was a very experienced person, very more towards the end of their career and really a subject matter expert. So a really, really knowledgeable about a subject area. And Brock kind of broke all those rules in a super inspiring way. So Brock became a principal after only two years of teaching, which is kind of unheard of.
0: Um, (laughs) Wow, that's pretty quick.
7: Yeah, and so um, his career kind of began in a rural school authority in the province that, you know, there was a need for a principal, and he kind of always stepped up and modeled that kind of safe risk taking and service really is a great servant leader and he is somebody who you know always really just wants to make a positive impact on other people and so Brock ended up becoming my principal for two years when I was teaching in an elementary school and he really just like I said exemplified that servant leadership but also the idea of lifelong learning and Mm always being able to create an environment for staff and students that was conducive to learning and growth for adults and for kids. And in the field of education, there is a study of management, but it's a classroom management study, okay? Okay. So most teachers and educators really think about, you know, how to build safe and caring schools and how to build environments where kids can perform their best. And Brock was the best leader, I believe, and understanding that that exact same philosophy actually has to be applied to your staff as adults.
0: Amazing. So
7: he treated us the way we wanted to treat the kids. And that was a whole other level of servant leadership. So when Brock first came in over the summer, he was just trying to build some relationships, you know, get to know his staff before the kids come in for the school year. And Brock walked around and found a first year teacher prepping in their classroom which is very typical mm-hmm. and in an elementary school laminating is kind of the bane of your existence okay so you laminate and plastify everything because kids spill everything and you use these labels all year but it is a good investment in your time okay <laughs> so brock finds this first year teacher with a huge roll of laminating and he says to him hey what are you doing and he says oh i'm just cutting out some laminating getting ready for first day of school you know And Brock says, do you want me to do it for you? And I've never to this day ever heard another leader be so willing to take off manual administrative tasks off the plate of their staff. You know, like he truly recognized in that moment that he had the capacity to cut that out for him and to support that first year teacher would give him so much more mental freedom. And it's something that so many principals or leaders would say, you know, that's below my pay grade. Right. Right. I I don't cut stuff out anymore. And it's that idea of like being willing to see the organization from the perspective of your staff and see that from his perspective as a first year teacher, that individual, actually his whole life was consumed with basic, how am I going to make my classroom function? Maybe a safe place for the kids to arrive. Whereas maybe Brock in his lens is thinking about what does your, Teaching strategy look like, or your method, but Brock is an excellent leader at differentiating two for his staff and recognizing that different staff are in different places in their growth and their learning. That you as a leader adapt to them to push right. them for growth, no matter where they are. He was really instrumental in bringing us back to basics and bringing us back to like what are our values and what are we trying to achieve. So, in regards to the way we functioned as teachers and as teens, he would ask us, you know, to reflect on, do you have the things that are going to set your kids up for success? So, you know, do you have ongoing assessment? Do you you have routines? Do you have relationships? And then can those three things actually be adapted for each individual in your classroom? And so He would kind of model this process of what it would look like with a student with his staff.
0: So then on that note, tell us a little bit about those who were not, or maybe one that comes to mind that is not your best boss ever.
7: Yeah.
1: So so that was the next, it's almost like a video game, right? Like, you know, like the end of a video game, you face like the final boss and then like you graduate. So the hardest one is yourself and that was kind of the outcome of my experience at Scaled is it, it led me to saying yes to myself in some really important ways that kind of brought me back onto the path of realizing that I actually don't really want to work for anyone else. And I really needed to commit to building a business on my own. So I remember like there was one time that we were having dinner with the other partner and some of our consultants, and we were talking about a big training rollout that we were going to do. For one of our biggest clients later that year, that was sort of like an all hands on deck type of situation. And I think like the other partner was going to, he was going to like the south of France on vacation with his wife for a couple of weeks that summer. And I was like, well, if we're going to be doing one of the cohorts around August, don't count me in for that because I'm going to be out for two weeks in August because I'm going to Burning Man. And Jake was just like, when are you going to grow up? And I was like, excuse me. And it like in that moment, I was sort of like, whoa, wait, wait hold on. Like, like this guy's going to go drink rose on the beach in the south of France for two weeks. And right. I'm going to go drink rose at Burning Man. Like, yeah. what's the difference? You know? Right. And there were just some things like that where I sort of started to be like, okay, there's some boundaries to draw here between like th- these are the things that I want to take from this situation. And then these are the things that I'm not willing to. That are not malleable for me,
0: this is the line. There is a line, yeah, it's, been, it's getting crossed,
1: yeah. and I, I think it was really helpful for me to like have the experience of being able to relax a lot of my boundaries and like let in a lot of direction and a lot of advice because I had never felt like I had that much to learn from someone that I worked for before. And then that was one of the things that kind of led me to being like, okay, I think that like I've completed this chapter. And then I I started to start to carve out space to start to work on like my own projects. And I ran into every single tendency that can hold you back in rapid succession, like starting with like like procrastination, like I would sit down to do something and then I would be like, well, wait, what am I supposed to even be doing during this time? And like, wait, where's my notes? And And I'm like, my God, I would never show up for a meeting with somebody else like this like, why am I doing this, you know, for myself? And then that sort of led to, you know, the the second part where it's sort of like, well, whatever, like, you're not going to be able to do a job at this right now. So just go do something else anyway. And then feeling really bad at myself because I wasn't being productive enough. And then realizing that I was being the Overbearing boss that I was trying to get away from to myself, and that I still had that voice in my head that was like, you know, what are you doing? You're never going to be successful. Like, this is ridiculous. And then I'm like, wait a minute, like, who am I performing for? Mm -hmm. And so that was the most interesting part of it, was realizing that I still had in my head the voice of everybody that I've ever worked for. And it was like this weird, invisible Greek chorus around me in my (laughs) office
0: by myself. Yes.
1: We don't have a lot of models for positive motivation and like positive self-management. And I think that in the absence of another framework, your brain just sort of defaults to whatever has worked for you in the past. Even if what that was was actually not really that healthy, like there's a lot of things that can be effective that are that are actually not really good in the long term.
2: One would be the after hours email thing. like i I had a couple people I worked for that I could tell their their work time was Sunday mornings. and mine's not. Like mine's not. And so to get emails from your boss at ten in the morning on a Sunday, when even though he or she is not expecting an answer but it's still ping 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 on the blackberry or on the iphone when i'm trying to separate myself and have a nice sunday morning with my family i found it very distracting and so covid became a weird thing for that because people's work days kind of got all flexible right i'm working from home so i've you know i might have to do stuff with my kids and then i'll be online later and and we've lost this sense of a clock and so I also work at weird hours generally, like super early or late at night or on a Saturday because I cut out early on a Thursday and all these things. But but I, I'd ask my team now, like I tend to go like, do you, would you rather me, when something comes to mind on a Saturday afternoon, do you want me to plop it into your inbox on Saturday or do you want me to save it up and like carpet bombing Monday morning <laughs> with 16 emails? Yes. And some people say send it to me when you think of it, because I know that you don't need the answer right away, but it allows me to kind of reflect on it for a bit and think about it. And it doesn't hijack my day when Monday, I think I've got my day plan and all of a sudden, you know, I've got three questions at seven in the morning and others would say, I'd rather you keep the distance and draft them and hit send first thing Monday. And so everybody's different. And so I I just learned from that one that like, you know, there were people who would have got those Sunday morning emails from that boss and wouldn't have cared, but it's, I think, it's asking and trying to say, you know, how do how do I customize? How do I do that? Is is important?
3: Turnover, which is very expensive, less productivity, and bad behavior. I think begets bad behavior. So, you know, if I beat up on you, then you beat up. Everyone's trying to like. Then it becomes a blame party. Who you mm-hmm. know. Um, As opposed to like rising up, it pushes everybody down. You know, I mean, I don't have the stats offhand, but you and I both know that, you know, companies that are run well, see better profits and the output speaks for itself. People's mental health matters. No job, no amount of money in the world is worth being miserable all day, being stressed, feeling uncomfortable, feeling beat down and not appreciated. And I always say too, employment is a two way street, even though I may be paying you it goes both ways. You are not my slave or anything like that. You know, I always say like the difference between a good boss and a bad boss, a good boss treats their employees like comrades, not soldiers. I'm asking you to do a task and I'm paying you for that task. And in return, I'm giving you an environment in which to do the task. And also, yeah, I mean, people are just not standing for it. Um, There's, you know, there's a lot of competition. There's, Most people are now awake to the fact that, you know, there's something better out there.
4: I wouldn't classify any of my leaders as the worst boss ever. But I would say, you know, that piece about not feeling anxious around Chuck's leadership and not being anxious about making mistakes, definitely had other leaders where I felt more anxious about making mistakes and more worried about the micro because that's where the focus was as opposed to let's focus on the bigger picture. And yes, we have to get the micro good and let's not let perfect get in the way of good enough. And so that's what I would say. Leaders who operate kind of by policy and by mandate and by iron fist and by perfection, that's not going to motivate anybody to do good work. And so really figuring out what motivates people to do their best work and what does the exact opposite is really important for leaders to take a hold of. And so I would say emotional intelligence is one of those things that can, I mean, it it can't be overlooked because it's so critical that we understand how people are reacting to us and how people are performing as a result of reacting to us.
5: You know, it's interesting. I think that I I would say that part of having a bad boss is where you are in your mental framework as well. Like if I had a bad boss now, I think I wouldn't be in a the same state that when I used to have bad bosses, right? Because mm-hmm. I was I wasn't aware of myself and I was unsure of myself. And so when you have somebody who's walking around with their own issues and lo- and their own self-esteem issues crashing into your own uncertainty, it's not going to be a good combo, right? Right. So I'd say the one thing I've noticed is low self-esteem Yeah, is one of the common threads I've seen, Yeah, which is why I think people really have to work hard if they aspire to be leaders, to be whole people. There's nothing more dangerous than a powerful low self-esteem person. Right. right. You have to work on yourself and feeling fulfilled if you want to be a leader because you, you you're governing people's lives. This philosophy of like, I can't compliment too much because... That will make them, their heads bigger, or they may leave us, right? Because mm-hmm. they're be so big, like keeping somebody's wings tight and clipped is what's going to keep people in your company, right? If people are going to fly away from you, they're going to fly away from you. And I think, you know, the reality is if they do it thinking that you've added to their life, that you've just amplified your influence in the world.
6: I had a leader who got hired in after I was there for a while. And the first thing they told me when they walked in was, I don't really know anything about what you do in learning and development. You know, that's going to be your thing. Move on. You know, admitting that they know nothing about what I do is not the problem. The problem came when within two or three months, they didn't seem to believe in my expertise. Well, if mm. you're not the expert, but I was hired because I'm you know, supposed to be the expert, And you will not only not ask for my opinion before you make decisions, but you will certainly never take my suggestions and stifle my innovative and entrepreneurial spirit. That is absolutely Mm -hmm. demoralizing. And and again, you know, I don't expect a leader to know everything. On the contrary, I think an effective leader hires people who are completely unlike them and complement their strengths and build it that way. I don't want to have 15 mini-me's running around. That's not going to go anywhere. I need somebody who's not Marianne. There's stuff I know I'm not very good at. Those are the people I want to hire who have those skills that I'm missing, right. So, so that was that was a problem for me,
0: well, and it's so interesting because you just pointed out something like so the person just didn't include you or didn't invite your expertise to the table. And so sometimes it's funny, we think of a not great leader as somebody who says something terrible or does something awful. But the truth is is there's this it's almost what they don't do. It's the vacuum yeah. of what yeah. was missing. <laughs> so many people have a hard time materializing the investment in leaders because they can't always see that direct investment. What do you think was the, the hard-hitting benefit to the business from a numbers standpoint?
2: Everything he talked about started with, why does that matter to the customer? how does how does that make a customer better off how does that make a customer feel better about their future and therefore want to do more business with us so because everything was always grounded in a customer needs standpoint then what flows from that are more trusted relationships more business more loyalty more referrals but it started out with a with you know a, a pure objective of one customer at a time how have we made their life better and, and all the other stuff just flows from that. And that doesn't matter if you're in banking or if you sell toothpaste or if you sell cars. It's about what unmet need do customers have that you have a solution for and how are you making that solution easy for them to get, understand, use, ask questions about, ask for help when they have it because people's lives are busy and information overload makes lives confusing. And if, if everything you focus on is, meeting needs in an easy, frictionless way for customers, the business benefits will will just flow naturally out of that.
3: It more than pays for itself because, you know, when you're a good leader and a good boss, then you train and mentor other people, not only in how to do the hard skills of their job or the technical skills, but the soft skills of how to manage situations, how to treat people and that continues to pay it forward so one you know one would think that you know the roi becomes up and up because you know i you know have imparted my lessons on people who then you know carry Mm -hmm. it i mean you know samantha who's my right now has worked for me for almost 18 years in one capacity or another and now she went from being my intern 18 years ago, crazy to my business partner. And now we pass it on to all the people that work with us a certain style of work. And so it continues to spread. And hopefully, you know, it's like an antidote to the bad bosses.
4: I think Chuck can probably count and also not know about how many amazing leaders he's developed and how many amazing leaders they've developed and how much business has been brought into Deloitte. I mean, he's he's a career Deloitte person. I mean, he's had so much impact on that company. He eventually he had a few amazing roles, but the most recent role he had or one of the more recent roles he's had is the CEO of the risk advisory business. And I can only imagine, you know, through his relationships and through his building of leaders, how much that's impacted the bottom line. I mean, without a doubt.
5: I think that More than even compensation, people want to be seen, valued, and developed. I'm not saying people want to be underpaid, but I think that compensation becomes the only conversation in the absence of those things. And so the price you pay for disruption and turnover and so many other things, and just our work life is the most of our lives. And just the mental health you provide and the cultural health you provide when you aspire to be a good leader is insurmountable, right? It's just unbelievable. And so one day, maybe we'll be able to have the metrics to be able to quantify this in a proper way that, you know, the bean counters will understand. But I think that ultimately, like, the only people that think in the form of compensation are the people that are not investing in being that kind of leader.
6: It's huge. I, I think if you have a best boss ever, and and again, I'm a little biased. I mean, it is intercultural stuff, right? But if that best boss can use those cultural competencies, those intercultural competencies, to figure out how to talk to each person the way they need to hear whatever the message is. Whether it's a difficult conversation or a motivational speech or saying, here's the bottom line, let's go get it, whatever it is, right? If they're capable of doing that, then the business will take care of itself. You don't have to apply excessive guidance. You can really just motivate people to be the best at what they are. I think the other thing that's really important about a best boss is that they build a team based on how the team fits together, keeping in mind the end goal. And sometimes it's not the person, with the very best skill and, and years of experience, sometimes it's the person who's the best fit culturally. Mm-hmm. You can always add skills, and but fit is difficult sometimes, right? Right. So it, I think it's absolutely key to success to have a best. Yeah, definitely. I think that the, the two things
7: that you do when you increase the bottom line as an educational leader is you, and what Brock has done is, he increases the capacity of his staff By recognizing emerging leaders and building and investing in them. And then he uses those great leaders on his staff to build the capacity with some of the more reluctant staff, which is a great strategy. And then he uses that to ultimately increase his bottom line, which is student learning. He increases the what, how much and to what level of mastery students are learning in that building because he's increasing the capacity of all of the teachers. And research makes it really clear. It's the teacher and then the principal that impacts student learning. That is amazing. So
0: just kind of as we're starting to wrap, I'm curious. You know that there's leaders that are listening to this. They're on the hunt for becoming or maybe they already are best bosses and they're always looking for fresh ways. What would be some of the tips that you would give them?
6: Oh
1: man, there's two books that I would recommend that have helped me immensely. One is The Upper Limit Problem by Gay Hendricks. Oh, I like that one. Yeah, it's really Mm. good. He has some podcasts too if you don't want to read the whole book. There's another one. It's a book that a friend of mine gave me that I've, I've probably given out like six copies to people so far, which is called The Diamond Cutter. I can't mm. remember the name of the author, but it's the best explanation of like super practical application of Buddhist principles that I've ever come across. And it's it's cool because the name refers to the Diamond Cutter Sutra in Buddhism, but it's also about a literal diamond importing company that these Buddhist monks run. It's just a very, very, very cool book. It's not like fluffy at all. It has like extremely practical, like practices that you should do.
2: The first one is you being a leader realize it's not about you. It's about the people you're leading. If you approach leadership from a, almost like a servant leader standpoint and an enabler to help people recognize and attain their full potential, then good things will happen. Like I, I want you to be successful for yourself. I want you to recognize and achieve your full potential for yourself and you know what knock on effect is if everyone on the team does that, then as a team, we're going to perform better. And then that will reflect well on me as a, as a leader. I think it has to be genuine. It has to be selfless.
3: So actually it comes from one of my favorite quotes of all time of David Ogilvy, who has a book of incredible quotes and thoughts on not just advertising on leadership. And he always says, you know, hire people smarter than you. And then you'll have a company of giants because that relates to the taking out the ego you know, focusing on the output and letting people shine. If we think
4: about, you know, delegation, so delegation isn't drop it on someone's lap and then leave. It's really being there as a support and as a sponsor and as an advisor and as a coach. So really perfecting that balance is really critical. So, you know, empowerment is my word. It doesn't mean delegate and leave. It means be there as a support and don't create that, that system of fear where people feel that, okay, well, I've been delegated to, but not really because they're going to micromanage me through it.
5: So I think there are two buckets. One is hardcore techniques, right? So definitely be an avid reader of like, management sort of techniques, behavioral science, all the things that sort of technically help you, right? It's already been written in the books. So there's no point in, there's nobody gets like originality scores in this. You're either yeah. a good or you're not, right? So the one thing I'd say is like, go read the books, read, listen to the podcasts like yours and everybody else, right? In fact, I know a lot of people that know how to say all of those things, but behind the curtain are not. All of that is useless unless you work on yourself. Mm -hmm. Because you'll never, you know, you know how they say like leadership doesn't make people, it just reveals them? Right. Right? You have to decide what kind of human being are you going to be when you arrive because you will be revealed, whoever you are.
6: Do anything you can to become aware of what's going on with your team members, right? I mean, it's that active listening that, genuine interest and what makes them tick and what's happening with them today in this moment. I know we get buried in work and we forget to listen and because we don't have time or whatever. I, I have a rule where I tell my team members, I know I get frazzled sometimes, but if you need my undivided attention, tell me I need you for two minutes in the conference room and you will have my, undiv- I'll drop anything. And we'll, you'll have my undivided attention because if I stop paying attention to what it is you need, I am not doing my job. So it's that cross-cultural understanding. It makes you vulnerable, which is actually a good thing because you can mm-hmm. admit that sometimes things are too much for you too, right? Yep. But if you make an effort to understand them, I guarantee you they'll make an effort to understand you and it will be, the sky's gonna be the limit in terms of, meeting your business goals?
7: I think to see your role as a teacher instead of a supervisor. So to recognize that actually all great leaders are just really great teachers. They're people who set up environments for people to succeed and grow. And so I think modeling humility, modeling that learning process is really important and modeling safe and measurable risk-taking and sometimes modeling failure. I think that those are the hardest things to get adults to do and that children do very well. And if we could kind of collectively fail together sometimes and reflect on that and and welcome that learning opportunity without punishment, that would be the best thing.
2: Can I share one other thought just to just to end? Please. So one of the things that I've thought about and as I, you know, as I get on in my career is how are you going to be remembered? and the whole legacy thing. It was about 10 years ago that I made that switch in my mind where I said like as a leader I'm not trying to be a good leader so that I continue to do well personally and professionally. I'm being a good leader to leave a legacy, right? And so I often think about, you know, like I go to the odd retirement party now and and mine isn't going to be that soon, but when it does come, you wonder like what are people going to say, right? And I hope that long after I'm gone in this capacity that someone tells the odd story about Brent that they remember and that helped them, right? And so for me, that's that's always been a bit of the the wind in the sails is leaving a legacy that will help people far beyond your time to see it.
0: Amazing. Well, listen, that was so helpful. And again, thanks so much for taking the time. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.